Hi, and welcome back to Mastering Agility, a podcast series with and for inspiring agilists, brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the agile coaches and scrum masters you need. This is already the fifth episode in the series. My name is Sander Deer, and I'm your host. Last year has been impacted by COVID in a pretty severe way. And outside of our usual private lives, it has had a massive impact on the way that we do our work as well. And a big part of that is that we have been limited in the way that we communicate. And from my side as a Scrum Master, it's become a lot harder to read the room, for instance. Something that has been impacted as well is the way that we conduct our discussions when it comes to value and the way that we interact with stakeholders and today we're going to talk to Jeff Batten about how this works what his view is on these things Jeff welcome to the show how are you I'm fabulous today I'm glad to be here it's we've been talking a bit before we started this it's been great to meet you look forward to talking likewise thank you very much um What I want to talk to you about first is the first line of the Agile Manifesto, individuals and interactions over processes and tools. How do you feel uh, the current state of the world is compared to before COVID? Uh, Like everything, there's good news and bad news. Uh, There's a principle also in the Agile Manifesto about face-to-face collaboration being the best, best way to work. That's Impossible. Uh, the, the good news is, you know, you and I are talking on Zoom today and I talk to a lot of people on Zoom and WebEx and uh, uh, Google Meet and other things like that. And the other piece of good news is we've gotten a lot better at collaborative tools that let us work together. I use Miro a lot. There's Miro. There's a, and there's, there's more tools that let us simulate working together face to face. Let us work like we're working in front of a whiteboard. And the, the, the good news is it's not so bad. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe face-to-face is still the best way, but not by a huge margin. Uh, we're, the, the pleasant surprise for everybody is that, uh, is that this works. Uh, we can actually, you know, one of the main uh, points I punch in the story mapping book is that collaboration is about building shared understanding. It's about syncing up uh, our heads, not writing a better document. And we're collaborating. It's, it's working remotely. Uh, so the good news is it's not so bad. And uh, the other part of the good news is now people are widely distributed and we can collaborate with a lot of people better than we ever have that are, that are flung all over the world. Uh, and that works. But the bad news is we've got to be a lot more deliberate about it. Uh, it's, it, people are in different time zones. We do have to g- get online. We can't, we don't pass each other in the hall anymore. We don't overhear a conversation. We don't see something on a whiteboard and ask somebody about it anymore. Uh, it has to be more deliberate and humans suck at being deliberate about that. So one of the things I see is a lot of effective collaboration, but with the, the companies I work with, the people I talk to, I start to see it get a little bit more siloed. Uh, the, the teams that work together talk to each other, but there's isn't a lot of cross-pollination and we learn, you know, people are, uh, it's harder to keep uh, energy and uh, energy, emotion, uh, motivation, uh, when we start to lose touch with the, you know, our company's bigger mission and purpose and uh, start to lose touch with our customers and users and things like that, especially. So, uh, yeah, can't, uh, that's what I'm seeing right now. Yeah. I, I kind of have the similar experience where indeed team members are very able to talk to each other for 
uh, for instance, through Slack and these kind of things. Um, but they're starting to ask the question, hey, can I talk to you? Um, whereas if you would be in the office, you can see whether a person is busy or he yeah. has the time or whatsoever. Um, what do you feel the product, uh, the impact on product um, outcomes are? This, again, you would think it's, okay, a couple things here. For the product companies I work with, things have been going pretty well. Uh, and they're, they're surprised that things, you know, they're getting, they're just as productive as they were before. The, the, the outcomes or, you know, by, again, by outcome, we don't mean building things on time. We mean building things that actually get used and actually generate value. Uh, you can deliver on deliver something on time and it has a bad outcome because no one uses it and it doesn't get any, it doesn't actually deliver any value. We get confused by that all the time, but I'm seeing outcomes are generally pretty good. There's another dirty secret about uh, product development is products are not wildly successful because you did a good job. Not really. Products are successful because you've solved the right problem and oftentimes at the right time. So uh, for a lot of product companies, uh, this is their time. <laughs> if you work for Zoom, you, you, you know, my God, this is your time. It's not because Zoom is any better than it was before COVID. It's just uh, a bigger need now than it was. So uh, product companies can be wildly successful and get a lot better outcomes because the, the need that they were addressing is even more imperative. But hey, if you work for a company that was building restaurant management software, life is going to suck. And it's not because you suck at your job. It's because restaurants are struggling and then it's, it's got to work differently. Uh, actually, some of them who uh, were quick to pivot and understand that restaurants need is now to fulfill orders that they can package for delivery or package for pickup of uh, a package to, to, to send out, uh, you know, for a, whatever meal service you got in your country, uh, you know, the rest, uh, people that could pivot to that need are doing well. Uh, yeah. Your big question is how does it affect outcomes? Uh, Again, people that are adapting, uh, it, it, they're doing great, just as well as it did before. And boy, uh, COVID has exposed so many more needs that can be addressed. Uh, but if you went into COVID with a roadmap of the things you were planned on building and you did not pivot, you didn't react to needs changing, yeah, uh, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Part of the, so, it's interesting yeah, that you yeah. bring up the, the roadmap thing. Um, traditionally, or the more common thing that I see is that roadmaps are based on features in the really yeah. technical parts. Um, I think this whole situation has made even more uh, crystal clear that outcomes are way more important than, than delivering on features and the certain effect that you want to bring and spark with um, the product that you're building and the roadmap um, should be based on, for instance, the outcomes that might prove yeah. to be a lot yeah. more effective. Now, how do you think we should interact with people this way now that you it's, it's a lot harder to really interact with your stakeholders for instance uh go back how uh, we're you were asking about the roadmap thing how did uh, how should we interact with people around roadmaps in general yeah exactly like the the outcome that you want to have for your yeah. stakeholders how can you translate that now into an outcome based uh, roadmap now that it's becoming harder to really uh, thoroughly interact with people. So first, that's always been hard. Uh, there's a weird thing about people's brains not being wired very well for, for outcomes. They're, 
we're wired better to think about what we're doing and doing a good job at what we're doing, building, building what we're building. And roadmaps are built around uh, building this and then following with this and this and this. But the you know the the I'm not a huge fan of the the, the user story format. Uh, but that last clause in is so that uh, something and everything that goes in your ro- roadmap has a so that. Uh, and what's missing in the roadmap is the so that or the so that we uh, achieve some kind of benefit or some kind of outcome. When I'm working with companies and roadmaps, and this is a before COVID thing and an after COVID thing, uh, I'll say, okay, the roadmap has output or stuff we're building. Let's fix it. And let's say, if we build this, then what will happen? What do we expect to see? And the minute you start attaching out that then, okay, we expect to see this in a a sentence, how would we measure that? Uh, Measure that benefit, measure that outcome and impact. And I want to, that's something I want to come back to because there's a big distinction in my head between outcome and impact. Uh, How would we measure that? Now your roadmap becomes something living. Uh, the minute you deliver something, the minute you start to measure, you will realize that you likely didn't get the benefit you expected. Uh, the world doesn't behave according to your plans. <laughs> you may have, you may plan to deliver features and be rock solid at delivering them, but your success isn't up to you. It's, it's up to the world. It's up to your customers and users and, and everything else. And sometimes you're wildly successful, but a lot of time, not so much. And then if your roadmap is living, you, you, have a, you start measuring and you've got a choice to make. Well, we're moving on to the next item, but we're not realizing the outcomes we expected. Do we keep grinding on or layer our next dumb idea on our la- on top of our last dumb idea? Or do we fix that previous one, uh, change it so that we actually get those outcomes? Uh, and, that, and making those changes was never in your roadmap. Or, uh, and again, if you had a roadmap, uh, in this time last year, uh, and you didn't blow it up because the world changed drastically around you. Uh, you know, you, you're, you've all got to be attention, paying attention to whether you're, uh, the things you're building are actually working, and pay attention to the world, how the world is changing. Because you built that roadmap when the world was a particular way, or when you were predicting would be a particular way. But that, that, uh, what's interesting is I don't know if that's changed very much, other than what we just talked about. Teams end up being a little bit siloed, and sometimes those opportunistic conversations with uh, leaders and stakeholders happen a little bit less. We've got to be, again, more deliberate about it than we used to be. A little step back, you mentioned a difference in distinction in your brain between impact and outcome. Um, Could you tell us what, what you feel the difference is? So the, that language system of output, outcome and impact, I did not invent it. It's been around for a long time. Uh, but it was strongest or most dominant in uh, the uh, nonprofit world or the not-for-profit world or the world where we're trying to bring about social change. Uh, if you're trying to bring about social change, you can launch a program or put something into place. That's the output. Uh, then the thing you immediately measure is what uh, what people do with it. Do they interact with that? Do they do what you expect them to do? And the impact is what happens as a consequence. You know, for, if we're trying to... Uh, the reduce, uh, look at it, let's talk about COVID. Uh, for, I live in America where people won't wear masks a lot of times. So if you introduce some messaging in the program to get people to wear masks, you can then measure uh, whether uh, people wear masks. And I can see how many people are wearing masks, but the impact is a reduction in infection rates. 
And uh, there's so there's a time continuum there. Outcomes happen first, and impacts happen as a question as a or subsequent to that. Now, when I apply that to products and business, I'll be sharp and say outcomes are what your customers and users uh, uh, do, say, think, uh, and we measure what they do. But impact is what happens inside the walls of your company. Impact is measured in return on investment. Your customers don't do return on investment. They, they, they buy your product and the result is return on investment. You build things for internal use. Uh, your employees use it and become more efficient and effective, and that reduces cost, and there's the return on investment. The, uh, your, your company needs things like return on investment, and uh, we'll talk about reputation or brand awareness or brand sentiment. Uh, you know, those are things that are measured with net promoter score. We'll talk about things like market share, growth, or growing in the direction you want. What matters to your company does not matter to your users. And companies stumble over the, we need revenue or we need growth. And yeah, but that's not an outcome. That's impact. Now the question is, how will you get that growth or how will you get that revenue? What will your customers do? Which, what customers will do things differently? And how does them doing differently result in revenue or result in that? So that's the twisty thing. The people inside the walls of the company are hyper aware of what their company needs, but they don't realize that your company does not get what it wants unless your customers and users get what they want. This is the exchange we're doing. And again, the difference is that the outcome is what your your customers and users do. The impact is uh, the result of that. Uh, that's, that's how I cut that sharply in my head. And people kind of get those things entangled all the time. And we start to see more um, material, more theory based on um, outcome delivery. Do you feel uh, products would benefit more uh, if we would think more about the outcomes or potential outcomes? Because I, I can imagine this is a, a lot harder to think about up front and to validate. Um, yeah. What's your thought on that? Uh, let me state that even stronger. Uh, it's not product development if you're not thinking of the outcomes. It's something else. Uh, now, a characteristic of, uh, uh, boy, uh, you've heard the term Taylorism before, or the Winslow Taylor, the, the shop floor thing. Uh, uh, Taylor's process separates the thinkers from the doers. Uh, the thinkers figure out what we should do and uh, how to do it, and, and then specifically prescribe to the doers what to do. And what we've got are a lot of processes that separates thinkers and doers. Now, a product company could be wildly successful if the thinkers are good at it, but the, the thinkers end up telling, that's where, that's where those roadmaps come from. It's a list of stuff to do. And the doers uh, then believe they are successful when they do more or they do more faster. And uh, But what's interesting is the thinkers, are the, if we talk about products and product success, the thinkers really are focusing on outcome and impact. They have to. That's their job. Their businesses will die if they don't. But when they communicate what they want you to do and disconnect the whys, disconnect the outcome and impact, everybody comes becomes a doer. You, what, what, uh, uh, when I, when I look at companies and I look at their organizational hierarchy, I know that the people at the top are thinking about outcome and impact. And what I'm looking for, if I work down the hierarchy is where does that chain break? Where do, uh, somewhere in middle management or a higher or lower, where do people start communicating what to do and stop communicating uh, the outcome we're striving for? Uh, 
uh, where does uh, the thinking stop and the doing start? Or, and again, we have to think about doing, but where does the focus on outcomes stop or break in that chain? Uh, I might have lost the plot with your uh, with the question there, but uh, yeah, again, it's not product work unless you're focusing on the outcome. It's service work, it's delivery work, it's project work, and I see most teams focusing on project work, and they can do very well at that. But they're not product teams; they're project teams. Uh, they're teams providing the service of building software. Is there a common thread or a red line that you find in these organizations that you work with? That indeed, where the communication starts to stop, if you want to put it like that. Um, yeah, I like the way you just put it, uh, where the communication starts to stop. There's <laughs> a, a nice alliteration in that, so I'm going to use thank that. Thank you for that. Um, is there, uh, uh, no, it's, this is, I've been, I'm old. I've been uh, part of the reason we're talking is because I was, I, uh, by a lucky accident, I started with. Uh, agile development very early uh, through you know, with extreme programming in the year 2000 and then the agile term was coined in 2001 so it's just been added a long time uh, uh, I'm mindful now that I uh, engage with this uh, that uh, to a large degree uh, the focus on outcomes started to stop with me I was a product manager. I worked with my team. I knew what we were trying to achieve. And then I turned around and told my team what to build. And I held them responsible for building what I envisioned or what I asked for. Uh, and, and in my head, I'm, I felt I needed them to build what I was asking for because I'm trying to achieve that outcome. I wasn't leveraging their thinking. They didn't know what outcome they were trying to achieve. So uh, one of the things I'll go start with is how do you see it? Uh, I see this with product owners and product managers. The, 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 it starts to stop there. Uh, uh, but then you, it's easy to look up to their leaders uh, above them and you can see their leaders. Do Are they communicating uh, outcomes? And sometimes uh, that focus on outcomes starts to stop at the CEO, <laughs> the very top. Uh, it doesn't. The focus on outcomes doesn't get below the sea level in some organizations. Which is kind of funny if you if you put it like that, because we're so, especially as a scrum masters and, and product owners too, we're trying to think so much and, and spark our scrum teams to to think about these outcomes and, and to place ourselves in the users and, and our clients and whatever they want to achieve. Um, where I rarely see any sea level really engaged in the product. Um, so that kind of sounds contrary to what you're mentioning. Is is there a a way that you would handle this specifically? There's a. It's, remember that separation between outcome and impact. Uh, executives in a company need to be responsible for the impact. The, those impactful things, the return on investment, the, the, the revenue, and the efficiency, and the, the the brand and things like that. That's how your company stays alive. Uh, your your company pays its bills with money, uh, not with, uh, and it grows with market share. It grows more easily with good brand or good reputation. Uh, it doesn't grow with happy customers. Uh, those are means to an end. And uh, so the people inside the company who are rightfully stressed about whether you still have a job and whether they can pay your paycheck or uh, uh, whether they can satisfy shareholders, yeah, they tend to focus on uh, the impact or the business impact of what's going on. And they sometimes will see 
customers and users abstractly uh, as uh, as pods. It ends up being our job in the middle as the product people to connect the dots between what we build, what customers will do, and how it impacts the organization. Uh, uh, that's uh, so. Yeah, sometimes I see that disconnect. The the very best uh, executives do understand how that mechanism works and get involved. And what um, I think your original question is: uh, Look, one of the things I strive to do is to build empathy. Uh, empathy means I, I understand those customers, I understand their problems. And the, the closer you get to actually seeing them or being with them when they do things, uh, the, the easier it is to build empathy. It ends up being if you're in the middle and you're working directly with customers and users, uh, it's your job to build empathy up and down. Uh, it's, it's one thing to say that your customers have a problem. It's another thing to give an example, to tell a story, to make it real uh, so that people can, the, the, the stories help people feel it. Uh, so yeah, your, your job in the middle is to help build empathy and help understand we're solving these customers' problems and this is why, and this is the problem we're solving. Did I lose the plot there? Uh, I was going to long answers. And oh, that's all right. I um, remember if I answered the right question anymore. Sure. Um, one of the biggest challenges that I see in the answer is breaking the political game, especially in large incumbents and uh, large monolithic uh, organizations. Um, how do you deal with this? How do you create empathy where the polit uh, political games are so big? Yeah. Oh, this is the uh, $60 billion, billion question. Yeah. Every time I teach a class, uh, I'll talk about ideal ways of doing things and then I'll open up uh, I'll open up uh, after every class I have open office hours or Q and a and almost I can predict it every single time. Uh, the, the first question somebody asks is if the first thing they recognize is this is not the way my company works culturally. Uh, and uh, how do I do this? How do I bring about change? Uh, it's, it's relatively easy to change process. It's the, but the, your real process mirrors your organization's culture, and it's super hard to change culture because we're talking about changing people's uh, internal values and principles, what, what they what they believe. Um, uh, your question is, how do you change it? I don't know. The the, the if I had an answer for that, uh, you and I wouldn't be talking. You would be meeting at my uh, mansion, and uh, um, and I'd be well. I'd be doing better <laughs> if I had an answer to that. Anybody <laughs> would be. Uh, now, the, what I do? Uh, uh, there's one practice that I force everybody to uh, force. Uh, that's a strong word. I ask everybody to add into their agile process. Uh, that helps start to bring about a change in thinking. Uh, you know that uh, if you're working in Scrum, every sprint we build little bits of things. Uh, uh, we build stories or backlog items that generally take a couple days to build. But those things pile up into actual features that we eventually deliver. And uh, that feature capability we deliver, I will ask teams to, okay, celebrate the delivery of that feature uh, because the, the velocity uh, was the velocity we're looking at every sprint is parts of features, not whole features. Look, I want to celebrate the delivery of the feature every time we deliver the feature. And then let's talk about the feature and its quality. And I'll ask them to put it on the wall and I'll ask them to put it on the wall in a continuum of actual effort. Uh, you know, if we predicted this feature was going to take two weeks and it took two months. Okay. Let's note that. That's what it really took. Uh, and actual effort. Then 
uh, that's something we celebrate. We talk about, did we finish any features, actually deliver them? Uh, where do they fit? Uh, how do we think we did on that feature? Uh, not just the individual stories. Then over time, we start to track actual outcome. Everything we deliver starts in the, I don't know. I don't know what the outcome is because I don't, I just barely delivered. I don't know if people are trying it and using it. I can see what my stakeholders said, but that's not an outcome. Your company doesn't make money because your stakeholders are happy. Uh, but as time goes by, we, uh, we pop it out of the, I don't know category into a continuum of awesome to awful. And people start to realize, oh, Outcomes take a long time. Uh, I, uh, you know, if I'm building software, I'm waiting for people to adopt it and use it. And it doesn't happen overnight. Definitely didn't happen in sprint review. And for some products, it takes weeks or months or even longer to actually observe an outcome. And by observe an outcome, I mean get value. We talk so much about value. And people start to realize, wow, outcome thinking takes a lot longer. No wonder we spend so much time talking about the output because I can see that and touch that and evaluate that. The outcome, again, isn't up to us. It's up to people and uh, that takes a long time. And the other thing they'll start to realize is how on time I was has nothing to do with the outcome. That thing we were, were super challenged with and super late had an awesome outcome. And those things that we were rock solid and we thought were good and we delivered on time had a bad outcome. Uh, the, 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 those things don't spin. They're, they're not, there isn't a strong correlation to how well you do meeting your sprint goal or delivering what you said or uh, the, the, delivering things at the quality level to, to the outcome. So the, changing that or making that, uh, making actual outcome a topic every sprint review, that starts to change things. Uh, people ask, why is that awful? What did we do? How, uh, how do we fix that? And that's a nice topic for the team. How do I make what we just delivered better? How do we get a better outcome out of it uh, is, is a better topic. Uh, is that all? It's a long story. That's, mm -hmm. that's how we slowly start to change. Speaking about, change, give us something better to think about speaking about slowly changing if let's say we're in a startup where we're or a new team we're kind of reliant on the budget and what we can deliver in in a few yeah. um in a few sprints time we have to reduce risk uh we got to drive the outcomes and based on the outcomes we are being funded further now if this takes months um how can we still project whether we've achieved the, the, our funding. Yeah. The, the, so there's another product concept is all products uh, go through life cycle phases. You, you mentioned being in a startup. Uh, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember the, the there's different models that uh, when we're, uh, when we're starting up a product, we're trying to learn. We're trying to get a toehold when we're introducing a product or uh, uh, the, the life cycle I like is explore, expand, sustain, and retire. When you're in exploration mode, uh, you don't have customers. You don't have outcomes. Uh, there's only investment, no return. This is pure R&D mode. The goal of exploration is to learn fast and get a toehold, make sure you're uh, identifying a real customer and a real problem to solve. Once you have really, look, we've really got a customer here, a problem to solve, a real market, uh, uh, then we're moving into expand stage. Now we want to uh, acquire more customers and evolve our product so it's better and grow into the market. And then when we're in the same mode, we've got customers and we want to keep our product alive as the world changes around it, as our competitors introduce more things. When you're a startup, you're shoveling a lot of money out on a big bet, a bet that we can find customers, things like that. And the actual outcomes 
in early stages are learning outcomes, our evidence that we are getting traction, that we are solving a real problem for people. Uh, and there's definitely no ROI in early stages of a startup. That's that's you're not going to get return on that investment. Your, your founders have a budget. If it, if it came from venture capitalists, your venture capitalists aren't expecting you to get ROI either. They're expecting you to show evidence of traction. And uh, so the outcomes you're looking at change at every life cycle. Evidence of traction, growth in the market, uh, uh, building the market and sustaining it. And then when you're in retirement mode, the goal is to retire it as quickly as possible because you're not, you should be doing other things with your money other than maintaining that product that isn't making you money. So the, the, the outcome and impact you expect at every cycle is different. Uh, the, uh, your question is uh, just make sure you know what outcomes you're focusing on during that life, uh, during where you are in your yeah, life cycle. You need to get the traction. One of yeah. the biggest bets or one of the biggest gambles that I've seen when it comes to that is for instance, Tesla, where it took them years and years um to really get back into the black numbers yeah what's your best story on um for instance how these kind of products are built up gaining traction and ultimately really pay off oh the uh, uh, best story about uh a product company gaining traction uh, doing things um well, i don't know if i've got any good stories it, the, I talk to a lot of founders and the, the, I get the opportunity to talk to founders of companies that have, have, have uh, grown. And the, the, the interesting thing that uh, the founder is just usually just as surprised at the success of the company as anyone. They were making a bet they, and the bet paid off a lot better than they, than they expected or thought. For every successful founder, there are 10 unsuccessful founders. That's the way it works. The odds of a new company succeeding are that. So there's a lot of luck, a lot of chance involved. Now, uh, so it's hard to say, uh, there's a concept that comes from a book called Thinking in Bets. Have you heard of that book before? I haven't. No, not yet. But it, it you know talks about applying kind of gambling theory to what we do. It's a management, but uh, but humans are guilty of something called resulting. What I mean by that is I do something, and if the outcome is good, then the way I did it is correct. And if I do something and the outcome is bad, then the way I did it was wrong. But the world does not work that way. Uh, you know, in gambling, you know that you can be an awful gambler and still win sometimes. And you can be a fabulous gambler and gambler and do everything right, and you will still lose. And I see people going about product development really right and still losing. And I see people going about product development in a, in a way that is just an absolute train wreck and then being wildly successful in the market. Uh, and, and we keep trying to result. We keep trying to say, if we do it differently, we will then be successful. But there's so much outside of our control. Remember those outcomes are what your customers say and do. When the, the successes I can think of that come to mind when you answer the questions are the, success, the successes that come from uh, people listening and actively pivoting uh, their organization, of noticing we set out to solve this problem, but along the way, uh, uh, we saw this other problem that was better and we changed to solving that problem. If we were focused on our vision, focused on our big bet that we were trying to achieve and not paying attention to what customers are doing or what we learned, we wouldn't have pivoted. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the big industry examples, uh, the, oh shoot, I forget his name, but the, uh, let's, uh, I'm going to call him the worst game designer in the world. 
uh, there's this guy who keeps setting out to design games and the games he designed just don't get traction, aren't very good. And along the way, he builds other tools. Uh, you know, the first thing he built and grew up was Flickr. Uh, because in the game he was building, there was a way of sharing pictures in this massive multiplayer online game. And, and uh, Flickr came up and it was a, one of the early picture sharing things. Uh, he uh, went on to, to try it one more time, to, uh, sold Flickr, did this stuff. And one more time, he tried to build a, a game and the game wasn't successful. But along the way, that thing that he used for the teams, his team to communicate with each other was really good. That's Slack. Uh, and uh, and we all use Slack today. And again, uh, Slack and Flickr products are the worst game designer in the world. <laughs> what I mean by that is pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on. I, I've got companies that work in finance that uh, identify boring things like or we can launch a, a GRC product or a statutory reporting product because we were paying attention to, to what's going on. Uh, yeah, those are more boring stories for companies you wouldn't know. But uh, again, the biggest success successes come from on seeing a problem that's worth solving and jumping on and solving it uh, fast and not being this ties back to that roadmap thing and not being so tied to your roadmap that you're going to ignore what's going on. Really embrace the change mindset. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And last yeah. question, if I can make it a personal one, you've been in this game for quite a while. What's your ambition for, from now on, from this point on? Uh, uh, part of me wants to get rich and buy an island and uh, invent or build something that's wildly successful. But the, the, the real reason that I get up in the morning is uh, I, I believe so strongly that there's that it is built making not just the making successful things. Uh, everybody should feel what it's like. Uh, I've in my, in my career, I've had lots of situations where I've built a product and seen people use it and say, thank God I have this product. This is making my life so much better. And, uh, and I've seen the products that built actually uh, sustain a company, help us hire more people. Everybody should feel that. Everybody should recognize that's the point and that's what we get. My aspiration is that uh, we have a uh, uh, we have sane process and we have a world where everybody is focusing on the, the, the outcome things we've been talking about, but even more important, everybody feels what it feels like to actually deliver a good outcome, actually help somebody do something better. Uh, the, and I, uh, what I want is what the, I want to see what the process looks like that, that, that does that. And that's my aspiration is to, uh, is to get that, <laughs> see the world change more to that. Thank you. But for I realize that. I'm fighting human nature here. So. Uh, thank it's, you it's for a, those wonderful last insights in your personal career. Jeff Patton, thank you very much. Thank you. Re a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, Roger. I would like to thank Jeff and you, the listener, for joining us again in this episode. This episode is one of a series, so make sure to subscribe to the other ones as well. If you have any questions, feedback, specific call outs or you want to stay up to date to any upcoming speakers or news or whatsoever feel free to connect to me on linkedin to reach out to me via the site of agilitymasters.com find me on medium.com uh, i'm available on all the platforms you want me to be make sure to join us again next week where we have christian verweis and johanna Charteau talking about zombie scrum what is zombie scrum 
kind of sounds eerie. Let's find out next week.